eyes of concern about uh, Israeli and Zionist racism, right? Um, it's really, I think, uh, and of course, you know, it's a great, uh, it was considered a great coup that he softened his stance on the Holocaust from saying it didn't happen to it's dubious and ambiguous. <laughs> Thank you very much. All right. Um, well, I think that this really requires this alliance, right, uh, of the left, the political left, um, because this, this, these are the people who are really going to support an anti-racism conference. So, uh, finally, uh, this suggests really that the Jews' position as a powerful minority, or a perceived powerful minority, uh, why, uh, suggests why anti-Semitism elicits less outrage. The traditional allies on the left, right, are now uh, increasingly uh, c concerned about the Jews' alleged power, right? Uh, and hostile comments or jokes or whatever uh, directed toward perceived dominant groups tend not to elicit the same kind of moral outrage as hostility toward the, you know, the obviously oppressed, right? So when you joke about white men, only the likes of Rush Limbaugh get really, you know, terribly upset about it. So because they don't seem to be oppressed, because they're relatively <laughs> successful, uh, minorities like Jews, who are these uh, successful minorities, may not receive the same protections accorded to uh, more obviously disadvantaged groups. It now certainly makes sense to exclude successful minorities from affirmative action policies and the like that are really designated to try to, to increase socioeconomic advantage, but they may also be psychologically excluded from sympathy or concern and outrage over verbal attacks uh, and other forms of anti-Semitism that we've seen are, are really spreading around. So, in conclusion, <laughs> I know you're uh, grateful to hear that, time up. Um, I think the, what I've done here is done a better job of diagnosing the problem than suggesting the solution, and the diagnosis seems kind of grim. Uh, the good news, elements of the radical right and left, Islamic and Christian fundamentalists, and conspiracy theorists all over the world can agree on something. <laughs> the bad news, that something is that the Jews are probably up to no good. Now, this is not to say that anti-Semitism is universally shared. I don't think that there is likely to be um, uh, you know, a, a genocide in a Western European democracy, all right? Um, but, but there is a problem. Anti-Semitic conspiracy theories pose a, a clear and present threat, I would argue, not just to the Jews, but to the world as a whole, because they harden the Middle East conflict with suspicion constantly undermining negotiated solutions. And re-energized Jewish conspiracy theories don't help the chances that Western governments will muster up the political will to pressure both sides into some sort of uh, acceptable resolution. In the end, as the Holocaust uh, recedes uh, further and further into history, the general perceptions of Jews and Israel as successful and powerful may under, uh, short-circuit and undermine any uh, urgency to address worldwide anti-Semitism because it undermines moral outrage. Uh, even as this same uh, belief in Jewish success sows the seeds for future scapegoating. Thanks. Thank you very much, Peter. And the next speaker is Ron Aviram. Uh, his title is, is The Act. Sorry, to act or not to act, that is the question. The psychological impact of hatred in, in the geopolitical context. Ron is currently an instructor in clinical, in clinical psychology in psychiatry at Columbia University the, in the College of Physicians and Surgeons. He's a supervisor of psychotherapy at the New York Presbyterian Hospital, and he also has a private practice in New York City. He's a graduate of William Allison White Institute of Psychiatry and Psychoanalysis and Psychology, and he's widely published as well in this field. So it's really an honor that you're here. Thank you. Thank you. I want to thank Edith and Charles for inviting me. And it's a real pleasure to be at an interdisciplinary conference where generally we spend so much of our time speaking to our own kind. And in some ways, maybe I am, but <laughs> in other ways, definitely not. Um, and also, different disciplines and different styles. So. I'm going to read a, a paper. Can everyone hear me in the back? That's okay. Intergroup hatred is different from interpersonal hatred. This paper will discuss the psychological intention of hatred that manifests as threats in the geopolitical, at the geopolitical level. 
When prejudice in the form of hatred is enacted in society, individuals are perceived as large group members. This eliminates the autonomy of the individual. The vehemence of hatred indicates that something vital is at stake. As Eric Fromm said, we hate that which threatens life. Loss of identity is life-threatening, and this leads us in a direction that will clarify the ideology of prejudice. To understand this, I will elaborate a psychoanalytic relational model of prejudice. This model suggests that prejudice is less about problems between us and them, in-groups and out-groups. Rather, it orients us to the importance of the relationship between the individual and his or her in-group. This helps us understand that prejudice is as interrelated with large group identity, known as collective identity. Conscious and unconscious anxieties can lead to an over-identification between the individual and a large group, which is a precursor of prejudice. From this perspective, when a prejudice such as anti-Semitism is enacted, we're directed to the prejudiced person's over-identification with a different large group, using religion as a countervailing identity. We're asked to think about the dynamics that may be inhibiting nations from responding to the threat of genocide in Israel, posed by the possibility of nuclear weapons in Iran, and given the rhetoric of some of its leaders. Is it true that other nations are not doing enough to address this threat? We can see that some things are being done, but for those who are actually at risk, it may not be enough. Regardless of actions being utilized by governments, we can try to understand the psychological reactions associated with being in a position to act, but also not necessarily needing to act. For example, do people not care, or are people afraid, or is there something more sinister at work, like prejudice? <clears throat> Clearly, it varies for different folks, and we, we could do our best to identify the underlying motivations. An historical parallel occurred in the decade before the Second World War. It seems clear that there were efforts to contain the threat of Nazi German, that Nazi Germany was imposing on its neighbors, and especially the Jews of Europe. Today we recognize that the policies of appeasement were ineffective and were more wishful thinking than containment of a threat. It is quite possible that processes that were affecting people in the 1930s are relevant for our discussion today. Under these circumstances, there is a tension between inaction and overreaction. At both extremes, anxiety may play a significant role. One does not want to ignore actual conditions and end up colluding with an aggressor. And one does not want to start a war or leave one's home if it is unnecessary. Unfortunately, when it comes to taking action, you do not know it's too late until it's too late. From our vantage point today, we have the potential to learn from past mistakes and the possibility for foresight. In the Studies and Prejudice series published in 1950 by the American Jewish Committee, the editors commented that prejudice is a kind of problem for which it is easy to have a theory, but no one has an answer. It is similar with many political conditions that impact all of us. We probably all have opinions about this, and it occurs to me that because these problems are so vast and complicated, that each person may be attending to relevant and accurate aspects of the problem. Yet, like the metaphor of three blind men touching different parts of the elephant, we get different impressions about the problem. In 1950, following the most destructive period in human history, the studies in prejudice were initiated to try to move beyond, quote, common sense approaches to problems of intergroup conflict, unquote. I hope to advance our discussion by focusing attention on two aspects of the problem. First, I will discuss the psychological intention of the threats made by some of the leaders of Iran toward Israel. Prejudice has a kind of irrationality when it manifests, though it may seem perfectly rational to the person who hates. So we need to explain the un underlying psychological mechanisms that are operating when hatred is broadcast for all to hear. It is reminiscent of Hitler saying that he's showing the world how to treat Jews. Like when a stranger, or more insidiously, someone you know says to you, look at that Jew, or black such and such, as if you would feel the same way. Why would this person think you will agree? 
It must be because he or she thinks you are one of us, an in-grouper. I will discuss the impact of this threat upon surrounding communities and attempt to understand how the dynamics that are playing out between Iran and Israel may be affecting other nations and the psychological impact upon individuals who are witnessing this hatred. We know that there are cultural and national self-interests that can lead to intergroup conflicts. It is clear that prejudice is one kind of intergroup conflict and is associated with large group identities of all kinds. For this reason, we need to understand the precursors of identity formation. The point at which prejudice manifests is the end of the chain. Unfortunately, often the end of one chain is the beginning of another, and too often, once prejudice is enacted, it becomes part of a vicious cycle that loses a beginning. To make progress in our effort to understand the problem, we need to accurately assess the ideology of prejudice. This directs us to account for our understanding of human nature. In 1932, Albert Einstein wrote to Sigmund Freud and invited him to exchange ideas on the question, is there any way of delivering mankind from the menace of war? Freud was surprised about the subject chosen, for his initial thought was that such a question was not in the purview of psychoanalysis, rather it was a problem for politicians. His response, however, elaborated on his understanding of human nature, and although he claimed to be a pacifist, his prognosis for eliminating war was pessimistic. In keeping with his view of the role of aggression in human motivation, Freud writes, there is no likelihood of our being able to suppress humanity's aggressive tendencies. This was the best that could be conceived in that period. Freud's conclusion was a direct outcome of his belief that aggression is a basic drive in human nature that plays out in a variety of ways. In Civilization and Its Discontents, he writes, it's a quote, the element of truth behind all this, which people are so ready to disavow, is that men are not gentle creatures who want to be loved, and who at the most can defend themselves if they are attacked. They are, on the contrary, creatures among whose instinctual endowments is to be reckoned a powerful share of aggressiveness, as a result, their neighbor is for them not only a potential helper or sexual object, but also someone who tempts them to satisfy their aggressiveness on him, to exploit his capacity for work without compensation, to use him sexually without his consent, to seize his possessions, to humiliate him, to cause him pain, to torture, and to kill him. The existence of this inclination to aggression, which we can detect in ourselves and justly assume to be present in others, is the factor which disturbs our relations with our neighbor." Unquote. Freud's perceptions about human destructive relations, including at the intergroup level, met his expectations about human nature. Today we're able to incorporate another dimension into the discussion about human nature, a contemporary psychoanalytic perspective known as a relational psychoanalysis suggests that we seek to establish satisfying and cooperative relationships with other individuals. In clinical psychoanalysis, the focus is usually upon dyadic relations that develop, but more recently, the relevance of the large group in personal well-being and interpersonal functioning is being recognized. For Fairburn, an early relational analyst, the family is the first social group, and our affiliations extend to more inclusive categories that he called the clan, tribe, and nation. These large group categories play an important role in our connections with other people. Importantly, these large group categories become part of our self-concept. We establish relationships with individuals who are more often than not affiliated with one or more of the large groups in which we are members. In other words, other in-group members. Brief comment on the developmental implications of the model that I want to describe. Fairburn understood that relationships are fundamentally interdependent. For Fairburn, the initial relationships begin with what he called an infantile dependence upon a caregiver. This is associated with primary identification, in which there's no psychological differentiation between a caregiver and infant. Healthy development proceeds as dependence becomes a mutual experience and some degree of separation and autonomy unfolds. 
Fairburn called this a mature dependence, where an optimal balance, and this is important, between separation and attachment needs develops. Psychopathology, in Fairburnian terms, is indicative of a persistence of infantile dependence into adulthood. This suggests that primary identification influences subsequent interpersonal relationships. These boundary problems are a major source of interpersonal and emotional difficulties. This leaves a person constantly vulnerable with a persistent sense of threat in the world. Extending this theory of mind into adulthood suggests that in some cases infantile dependence and primary identification may continue to influence relationships in early adulthood. This is the time frame when establishing identifications beyond the family with large groups and society and facilitating collective identity become the primary developmental tasks. If we accept that pathology is associated with primary identification, it is indicative of a problem in differentiation between the self and other. When we apply this model to describe the relationship between the individual and the large group, we emphasize the conditions that would promote or impede an optimal balance between autonomy as an individual and affiliation with identity groups. At the, extreme, at the extremes, the individual struggles to maintain self-cohesion. When, when an over-identification occurs, there is no differentiation between the self and the in-group. We can suggest that prejudice is only possible when an over-identification eliminates the boundary between the individual and the large group. This can occur when there is a threat either developmentally present or environmentally imposed the conditions that uh, we face in the context that we're in. Importantly, an over-identification with the in-group is an effort to support the self. We must keep in mind that when prejudice manifests, there is no differentiation between the large group and the individual, and therefore the security of both is evaluated simultaneously. This brings us to the first question I raised about the psychological intention of the threats made by some of the leaders of Iran toward Israel. The relational perspective described above presumes that hostility is an effort to protect the self from a threat, as opposed to a classical Freudian view that suggests that aggression is a basic motivator of behavior. This can be conceived as an environmental uh, perceived as an environmental threat, but it may pre uh, be present within the person due to developmental experiences. When we're speaking about countries, among other hypotheses, I would like to speculate that the leaders are either compensating for their own personal vulnerabilities, or they're expressing, expressing hostility for the in-group, which is undergoing some vulnerability and insecurity. Sumner, in 1906, believe, uh, wrote that the cohesiveness of the in-group is proportional to rejection of the outgroup. This is a result of the rhetoric regarding the destruction of Israel. A psychoanalytic parallel to this was offered also by Fairburn back in 1952 in his discussion of totalitarianism. Fairburn understood that these regimes promote dependence upon the state as a substitute for familial bonds and foster an infantile dependence at the macrosocial level. In these regimes, security is fostered by belonging to the in-group, while aggression is directed at out-groups. If we accept that when an over-identification occurs, there is no differentiation between the individual and the large group, we can surmise that the hostility and prejudice in the rhetoric of Iran is a compensation for an underlying vulnerability. In other words, the over-identification with the large group is an effort to restore and maintain self-cohesion. This leads to two possible considerations. One is to try to understand if and how Iran has a large group structure upon which many individuals rely for an important aspect of identity is vulnerable and insecure. This implies that the large group identity is being used to enhance the group slash self, given that there's no differentiation between the two when over-identification is enacted. At the macro-social and political levels, leaders must determine if the leader of a threatening nation is directing hostility at outgroups for his own developmentally shaped insecurities, or whether environmental pressures demand that a leader express hostility for the nation. Both of these conditions can have both conscious and unconscious aspects. 
the developmental compensation is less susceptible to change uh, with actual environmental shifts in the context perceived as threatening because the threat is internally driven. This is a potentially more dangerous situation in that a leader's existence and the group's existence are identical and intertwined and both feel an ongoing threat. In either case, a potentially large segment of the populace may need to achieve a security by over-identifying, though this would be a transient over-identification for most people of the society. Hatred has a psychological impact on communities far beyond the borders of two embattled groups. There are clearly a number of processes that are enacted in this situation. We immediately notice that those who are not directly involved in this situation are literally bystanders. We may hear, well, I, we might hear more about this later today, and um, it's an important area of research in social psychology. Briefly, the research on the bystander effect was initiated following the murder of Kitty Genovese in the late 1960s in a tragic incident in which a young woman was attacked and stabbed to death in a neighborhood with many people all around in their apartments, very little action was taken to help her. Although the initial newspaper report was not accurate in saying that 38 people heard her scream and did nothing, the research that grew out of this was illuminating nonetheless and may be relevant for the question at hand. The bystander effect is associated with a diffusion of responsibility in which people don't want to get involved. They would say to themselves that someone else must be doing something. In other words, the larger the number of people present, the less likely someone will step forward to help. People take cues from others, and if no one else is doing anything, they do, they do not help either. Or they believe others know better how to help, or they feel self-conscious helping while others watch. All of these are rationalizations that allow people to manage their anxiety and minimize feeling guilt. In addition to the diffusion of responsibility that the bystander effect induces, I want to discuss the burden of responsibility that people are constantly tempted to avoid. Eric Fromm wrote about this effect in his book Escape from Freedom in 1941. For Fromm, people find it hard to tolerate the responsibility that is required to be free. In other words, to achieve a true identity and autonomy as a person. They seek all sorts of ways to escape from this freedom with drugs, work, mindless preoccupations, as well as what in 1941 he called the authoritarian personality, another version of loss of autonomy and succumbing to the large group. It seems that the question of why people are avoiding taking hard actions in the case we're discussing involves some element of this burden of responsibility. It is a kind of willful neglect of the action required if one takes responsibility for one's life. It is a trade-off between hard choices that come with inner freedom and anxiety, and what Harry Stack Sullivan called selective inattention, that comes with an illusion of an easier path. Underlying all these choices, we can see that anxiety reigns. Again, we're confronted with the difficulty of making a choice and the continuum between inaction and overreaction. How does one choose? It seems that between inaction and overreaction, there can be an appropriate action. I think that this is, requires a constant management of knowing and not knowing. And in this area is where uh, the problem uh, resides, and what I'm going to talk about as enactments. The presence of defensive processes such as rationalization, selective inattention, or dissociation implies that anxiety is having a significant effect. Also, by definition, defensive processes are unconscious, so people do not necessarily know that their perceptions are skewed by the psychological maneuvers, which are apparently self-protective. In the situation we're addressing today, we have some awareness about the threat but it is difficult to take in the full extent of the responsibility of knowing. It is a common condition encountered in psychotherapy in which a vicious cycle ensues and actions lead to reactions that justify actions and so forth. In 1959, Wolstein called this a transference-countertransference interlock, and today it is often called an enactment 
that plays out between a therapist and a patient. This is not an uncommon human experience. Something that can be known is repeatedly forgotten. Even Freud, having worked, worked out his, uh, his own ideas about the potential destructiveness of fascism, did not follow through on what he could have known and did not leave Nazi Vienna until the last possible moment in 1938. He did not seem to urge his family to leave either, and four of his sisters died in the concentration camps. All the different aspects of this discussion clearly draw our attention to anxiety associated with a threat. It is not one side's responsibility, meaning one group's responsibility to know while the other acts out. Often both sides participate in a cycle and simultaneously threaten while being threatened. The perception of hostility and prejudice may depend on which side you're on. As such, it is clear that neither side is free of feeling threatened and insecure. A bridge between individual well-being and geopolitical well-being involves security. The extent to which, the, to the extent that a person or a nation feels secure, they're able to be generous with their neighbors. This pertains to both interpersonal and large group dynamics. How we can facilitate secure experiences becomes a crucial question for developmental psychology and parents, psychoanalysis and patients, social psychology and the person in the group, and political powers and nations. Another important consideration that intertwines the experience of large groups and individuals to the extent that each represents the other is the human vulnerability to humiliation. As O'Leary and Watson discuss, humiliation is different from shame in that humiliation is perceived as an attack and it engenders fantasies of revenge as well as actual retaliation, where shame is associated with feeling exposed and a desire to withdraw. The problem of nations and in-groups feeling humiliated is that this perpetuates prejudice in the vicious circle and humiliation is less accessible to being remedied. In conclusion, we must keep in mind that there's always a psychological distortion that we encounter when we apply individual and interpersonal dynamics to large groups. For our purposes, it is not necessarily a malevolent deception. Rather, it could help us make some sense of real dynamics that play out between two or more nations. The deception is that we slip into talking about nations as if they are people. Similarly, there's a risk that we will begin to discuss all the individuals within a large group as homogeneous. This happens with the intention that it will help us understand the inner life of nations, with an implication that we can predict their actions, protect ourselves if need be, and work toward change when tensions arise. For individuals, the possibility of change is always implied in both implicit and in explicit terms when engaging in a psychotherapeutic process. However, there's a prerequisite if change is to take place. Change is not produced by the psychotherapist. Rather, it is the responsibility of the patient to change. The therapist can be a catalyst, but not a surgeon who performs an operation to fix something. Therefore, when we speak of nations, just as we would of individuals, we can attend to the desire for change and try to understand the underlying conditions that may inhibit change. All this implies a bias that each nation has in favor of enhancing its own stature and security in order to maintain self-cohesion and continue to exist. This, of course, has parallels in the individual person's effort to enhance self-worth, self-esteem, and security. Importantly, just as it is very unlikely that people come to therapy and ask for help with their prejudices, no nation is likely to ask external entities for help in changing values and ideologies. In fact, just as with individuals, lasting change must manifest internally. Thank you. Thank you very much, so we can sit here and take, we have time for some questions.
speaker. Uh, and I said this historically, Papyrus uh, for the first time in Greek Ptolemaic Alexandria, 300 BC. And the notion was that, uh, or there has been a notion, that one of the reasons for anti-Semitism is that we had the nerve to invent the notion of a single God. Uh, and the notion of uh, social responsibility and so on, which the rest of the world has never forgiven us ever since. What, does that, what part does that play in the history of anti-Semitism? Well, I certainly think that monotheism, you know, if there's one God, then we can't, you know, can't have my God and your God is invalid. So, I mean, I think that that, that puts things on that competitive footing, for one thing. I mean, I know there's also a sort of more psychoanalytic tradition of, of um, Jews resented as having laws and the superego and that, that sort of social justice uh, sort of thing, making demands. You know, I'd say that that maybe is a little bit more of a, you know, psychoanalytic kind of explanation, but I think that this, um, that monotheism is potentially part of the competition. I want to ask you, you spoke about selective inattention. Yeah. And I was wondering, when you were speaking, I was thinking about the fact that I lived in Israel during the Intifada. I remember I lived in Jerusalem, and people in Tel Aviv and outside of Jerusalem thought I was crazy to live in Jerusalem because it was such a dangerous place. And people outside of Israel thought that Israelis were crazy to live in Israel because it was so dangerous. And I remember living in Jerusalem, there was a, a bomb that went off in a, a neighborhood that was not in my neighborhood, it was 10 minutes away by foot. And I went to a bookstore, and I went to the owner of the bookstore who I knew very well, and I said, you know, and the bottom went off and many people died, and I said, are you okay? And he said, yeah, 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 it was just, it was three streets away. So our, our notion of, um, of our space and our notions of security are, are very interesting. You know, and I, from a psychological perspective, it must be fascinating. What is the relationship then between maybe the gaze or the perspective of, let's say, Americans looking at Iran and Israelis looking at Iran. And how, is it easier for people to be inattentive here as opposed to Israelis where the threat, I would say, is much more uh, serious? And I think the, the left-right religious secular um, perspectives of, uh, now in Israel, I think, are not so pronounced when it comes to Iran because the threat is significant. So how, how, do, how do these issues play out over time and space? Hmm. Yeah. Interesting question. Uh, I think that uh, uh, the question about one's response to a threat and how near it is uh, is may make a, it may make a difference in terms of a uh, capacity to feel dissociated or to feel uh, removed from an, uh, an immediate attack. Uh, I think that. It's interesting because I guess the Israelis would be much more uh, uh, closer to the threat, and you would think their anxiety level would rise much more. In some ways, your example of the storekeeper that has no feel it's three blocks away sounds like it, it could be a kind of a dissociated response that is uh, kind of removing the emotional component from that. The experience of Americans being much further away is perhaps a derealization, that something about it isn't so real in some ways. In fact, we actually perhaps dehumanize events in, in uh, the way we see them on television and, and are so far removed from actual uh, horrors of, uh, of uh, uh, conflicts and death. So the, the follow-up question is, how do you get people to know? How do you get people to, uh, to not be inattentive when it comes to these issues? How do you present material to them where they, particularly scholars and intellectuals and policymakers, become engaged in the problem. It's also an important question. I think that uh, one is about a safe place or space to, you know, speaking of space, that uh, let's say if, if we make an analogy to a psychotherapy room, uh, you know, uh, and process, uh, that some of the initial aspects of that require trust, 
as well as, uh, but that takes time to develop, as well as a sense of hope and uh, a capacity to um, feel safe that you're not being judged in that context as well. And, um, you know, I, I imagine that, you know, the, the people who write about conflict resolution, uh, I, I'm not so familiar with that literature, but I would imagine that uh, some other people here may know more about that, but I'd imagine that some of those same uh, concepts are relevant in, in conflict resolution and the capacity to sit with the anxiety that it brings up. My question is for Peter Glick. Um, I thought that your um, your model of scapegoating, your new model represented in advance over what's currently in, uh, or the, the other social psychological way of, of looking at it, but I had a couple of questions. One is that it seems to me that any model like that, when you apply it to a phenomenon as broad as anti-Semitism over so much time and place, is really going to be, if, if you try to apply it hundreds of years ago or in one country versus another, it's not going to get a lot of the, the differences and a lot of the specificity that's really quite important. And, and building on that, it seems that in particular, the model seems to me to be a little lacking in detail on target selection. In other words, why um, is a particular group selected? It seems to me that one of the main reasons now is that Jews are an officially sanctioned group in some places. There could be other types of conspiracy theories that you come up with in the Middle East, but, um, but the Jews are the one that's, that's okay. It deflects attention from everybody else. Um, another thing is that there are religious texts involved. The, the New Testament, the Quran have been giving justification and that makes anti-Semitism something very, very different. And the reason that the Jews are selected, very different from somebody else. And I'm wondering if you lose a lot of this with, with any social psychological model. Sure. So, so number one, you know, any sort of general social psychological model, there's going to be a lot of real-world variables that are just not going to be incorporated. I mean, I think the utility of this general approach is that it can incorporate, or you can, I think it helps. In, in starting to think about this targeting process. And it helps by thinking about it as an attribution process, not just a, you know, I think in the past, this is sort of like any, any group will do. But absolutely, the, the historical particularities matter. And as I said, you know, the past history of realistic conflict is only going to make you suspect that group more. And I was going to mention Christian anti-Semitism, certainly that embedding that in your holy book, right? Um, that is going to, to cement it in there, and for a large part of Christian history has done that. Um, but it also has gotten reenacted a lot. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, absolutely, I think, you know, you can't have a, a general social psychological model that, you know, that's going to explain everything, because it's, but I think it's a very, I see it's a very useful framework, and in thinking about different kinds of genocides and mass killings, I think the groups that, that have been chosen typically have been these groups that uh, are salient, uh, you know, minorities that are seen as powerful and that have had these prior stereotypes as this confident, cold manipulators, right? So I think that that is something you can look around. And, and I, I would recommend Amy Chua's book, um, World on Fire, um, where she talks about these market-dominant minorities um, like, like Chinese, the Chinese minority in the Philippines and Indonesia um, as fueling, you know, resentments, uh, again, it's kind of a mix of both, um, you know, stereotyping, but also, you know, there's some basis in reality and some realistic conflict and exploitation that's being resented. But then, of course, it, it can explode into to much more, and I think that's where some of these psychoanalytic motives do come in, right, and uh, where the historical particularities are very important, sure. Uh, during, um, during this uh, period, I occupy my time watching old movies, and one of the, uh, a lot of Bill Mars things, which was also of the period uh, of the after World War II, and um, where there's a lot of anti-Semitism. And uh, one of the movies that I came up with on my search was The House of Rothschild that came up in the 1930s. And I said, well, why do they do that? You know, I mean, there was all this anti-Semitism, and I believe that Hollywood Jews put out the movie. And does that, does that kind of thing, uh, should Hollywood and our entertainers uh, be aware of this and uh, work towards, you know, 
stuff, you know, not like Billy Crystal, he was making when he won an award, he was making fun of circumcision. You know, some of us turned off the television. Uh, should we all get together and say, let's not, you, you know, where I'm going with this? You know? Right, yeah. I mean, I think that's kind of a policy question, and it's a, you know, I mean, to what extent is the media reflecting the stuff that's out there, um, and to what extent is it reinforcing it? And certainly, you know, certainly mass media can reinforce these kinds of images. Um, but, you know, I think that in a lot of the media today, it's not Jews that are the predominant groups that are, that are, that are being, you know, um, that are being portrayed, right? Um, but, yeah, certainly I think it, it can contribute to the problem, but there is a, a deeper problem here that I think it's more of a symptom of, but then also kind of a reinforcer. Um, so actually, I was first. I wanted to ask what Neil asked, um, sort of, about religion and persistence of, of certain modes of uh, thinking or language, certain metaphors. Um, but so it's more of a comment coming, I guess, from the interdisciplinarity of our center. Um, but your model seemed to really remind me of the work of Yuri Sleskin in his book, <laughs> The Jewish Century, right, who writes about the Mercurian and Apollonian nations. And sort of the Mercurian nations, which are the traders, and the, these tribes of traders and bankers, later bankers and traders, and he does compare it through different parts of the world, how that, um, and how it changed in the modern era, where everyone became, in his view, Mercurian rather than Apollonian. And sorry, every, yeah, everyone became Mercurian. And so there's no need anymore for this group. And then all the hatred turns toward it. So I'm very simplifying it. But it sort of it very it reminded me of this model that there are certain groups that elicit envy and that play a certain role in society, and then when society changes, they're um, they're targeted. So my question is, what? How do you see that moment? Is there a moment of change? Sort of, when are they right. targeted? Because right. the stereotypes exist, 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 but then right. at a certain point right. it becomes violence. Right, and I think that's where these crises, collective frustrations. Are, are crucial. So you know you have these these um, stereotypes that are passed down. I mean they are embedded in cultural works, in cultural narratives. You know and it's not just in, in you know for instance Christian anti-Semitism is a good example. It's not only in the holy books and that's very salient and that's repeated, repeated, repeated. But you know uh, like Richard Rubenstein after Auschwitz talks about passion plays and, and things like that where you get this. Um, there's a there's a good example, you know, right? Um, Mel Gibson's film, right? So you get this kind of repeated, 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 and when things aren't so bad, when there's not a lot of threat, and that's where I think, you know, you're absolutely right. Threat and security are crucial here. When there's not a lot of threat, you know, this this, this group might be tolerated. There might be jokes. It might be less serious. But now, when things go to hell, you know, how did we get here? And then I think this kind of attributional process, which is in itself not irrational, can be influenced by all of these other things that are coming in. And an example I will use, you know, is like in medieval uh, Europe, if you believed, as everybody mainly, you know, most people did, they believed in supernatural agency, they believed there was a devil, it's a consensual cultural belief. Is it crazy? Well, it's not individual psychopathology, it's a consensual belief you were raised with. Now there's a plague. You don't have an alternative theory of disease. If you went back and said it's little tiny invisible germs or something like that, you know, no, they're going to think you're crazy, right? So, in that kind of context, once you buy these these premises, there's a certain logic, right? And um, but there's also this desperate need for security and for solving these problems. And that's when I think these groups are really, really vulnerable. It's when things get really bad for, for the majority now, right? Um, and, and now they really can blame it on this minority and resent them. And, it, and it's plausible because of this minority success. So it's not about structural changes or anything? Well, those are, you know, can be structural changes, I think. But I think it's, it's when, you know, those are very threatening changes. I have kind of a follow-up question, apparently, also to you quickly. Um, I was wondering how you defined um, uh, these minorities, how you def and, and it, I was wondering whether you would only look at the market dominant, you know, a as a success, uh, because in this I found the, the, the model, I found it very interesting, but 
was wondering if one only focuses on this market dominance. What first came to my mind, for instance, is um, the centuries-old persecution of Sinti and Roma and the ongoing prejudices and oppression. And, what are, and I was wondering what other kinds of um, envy could there be, not just you know, the economic one, then, then you could make, one could come to very different results also. Yeah, well, I think it could be. It doesn't have to be purely economic. It doesn't have to be, you know, you could argue that throughout history, Jews have had low status in some sense, right? Um, but, but again, it's this, this perception of some sort of success or something to be envied, and I think it's usually in, in a sort of perceived social economic success. But I think it'd be, you know, perception to get a power, um, you know, being able to exert some sort of control, that sort of thing. Uh, and remember, there is that cell for you know groups that are seen as competing because they're they're, they're maybe dangerous in some way. Um, the, the, the perception, right, uh, you know, is that they uh, they're out for themselves. They're they're outsiders who are trying to get something for themselves or, or be parasites onto society, even if they're not particularly successful. Those groups are also at risk, I would say. But I, I think again, it's these these groups that are minority elites of some sort, or the traders, right, you know, middlemen, that sort of thing, that they're, they're particularly at risk. But in Cambodia, it was like intellectuals and professionals, it wasn't like an ethnic group, but it was, you know, it was the city slickers, right, you know? What, what about the claim, the self-made claim of chosenness? What, how does that play a role in this? <laughs> Hey, I'm the chosen one. You're not. I mean, it's you know, right? I mean, it, that's that's not going to endear you. Generally, we are God's chosen people. I mean, again, I'm not trying to blame the victim. I mean, every all sorts of groups think they're they're the chosen or they're the you know right they're they're the group right. So, but you know, this myth you know I think Richard Rubenstein again is really good on this this mythological importance of Jews in Christianity because. Christianity came from Judaism, right? <laughs> and there, there you have that, that, that connection, right? These are very important people who have rejected, you know, their own truth, you know, from the Christian perspective. It's a, you know. But also I think that uh, all of these reasons that we could come up with that one group hates another, they're, they could, in, in the talk this morning, I think that there are elements of fabrication for one's own purpose, and you find reasons, every group can find another reason to, uh, uh, to dislike, even hate a group in which they're in some kind of conflict with, often in society that's set up as uh, in hierarchical kind of uh, structures, that, that it's uh, kind of efforts to establish one's own power over other groups. And uh, what's power underlying that is really a self-enhancement motivation. It's about self-esteem, feeling good about oneself. And, and always when, when we're talking about these intergroup uh, uh, hatreds, that for individuals, we're talking about it like in these examples here, on massive scales as, as opposed to, and also at times of conflict or threat in a society, a crisis in a society. That, and that can affect many people at once. Uh, as opposed to when societies are fairly stable, there are some people who still maintain those hatreds, and those are for internalized threats. They're kind of using the large group as a compensation. And all the reasons that we come up with, I think, are less important than the identity dimension, I think, is, is a key feature. If I can challenge you, but if, um, if you take away the whole notion of security and stability, and that sort of thing, and making people feel at ease, what happens if you have diametrically opposed worldviews? So you have one social movement that believes in creating a society based on certain values and ideologies and beliefs and perspectives, and you have, you know, for example, the notion of democracy, the notion of citizenship, the notion that everybody is equal under one law, uh, flies in the face of uh, another worldview. And there's a real confrontation. There's a clash. It has nothing to do with feeling good and feeling secure. There's, there really is a, a need on both sides to to change the power relations vis-a-vis -vis these two worldviews. What do you do? Well, the, the worldviews that, you know, each of those worldviews have, have their adherents 
uh, you know, so people believe in them and take them on as a part of their self-concept. And so that's when it, it translates to a self-enhancement motive or the relevance of that. The group actually helps us in one dimension of how we could feel good about ourselves. If our group is a stigmatized group, uh, uh, developmentally disabled individuals, uh, really the world over, that's a stigmatized group. And that, that aspect of their identity diminishes their self-esteem from their large group so they find other ways to try to enhance their self-esteem. Um, and so these two opposing worldviews, I, I still think, are identity groups. And you know, this one believes in this worldview, and this one believes in that one. The question I think you ask is, can, can they coexist? And, and two sides believe in what they believe, but not necessarily try to destroy each other. And uh, you know, world history hasn't shown that. It's possible. So, but I do think, just as uh, there's been an evolution in individual development in, over uh, history, I, I, I think that there's also a positive evolution in societies and how we get along. And, and then the, the notion of uh, uh, kind of the interrelationship, our interdependence, what I was talking about at an individual level, we're all interdependent. And maybe there's some elements of that between large groups of interdependence. And, Certainly, in, in some ways, I was thinking about this to ask you, actually, and if politicians are talking about this, that the, that the question we're talking about, Iran threatening Israel with genocide, is a kind of a false argument, because if they drop a bomb uh, on Israel, they're not killing Jews only, uh, Israelis only. And for some reason, we ignore the fact that they're going to kill a lot of Muslims, a lot of Arabs, Christians. after effect uh, uh, to surrounding countries as well. And it seems like an opportunity for Arabs and Jews. I mean, this could be a Shiite-Sunni issue too, but it could, which is another level of identity struggles. But, but it, it, it's an opportunity for Israelis and Arabs to say, wait a minute, this rhetoric isn't just threatening Jews and Israelis, you're threatening us too as Arabs. And, and uh, is it an opportunity for a, a collective response that actually involves two sides that don't generally uh, work together. So, so I'll answer you very briefly with two positive uh, stories. When I was in Geneva recently at the Durban Conference on Racism, there was a tremendous um, coming together. I'd say of young Israelis and European Jews, Darfurians, Rwandans, gay people, women's groups, and there were some pro-Israeli, pro-Zionist rallies that took place in Tunisia, and there were all these people were present. They were working together to confront um, radical, the radical Iranian regime. So there's some positive stuff happening, I hope. And I think it's really maybe the spark of something new that will show up on the scene in the next few months. I'm, I'm optimistic. Um, so that was positive. Um, also, I, I participated in a panel discussion at the UN where, um, I'm more on the negative side for now, but the, the, there was a, a discussion on, on Dehumanization, which leads to genocide. So there was a Hutu, sorry, a Tutsi representative from Rwanda who spoke about the Rwandan genocide. There were people from Darfur who were speaking about Darfur, which is now six years into the genocide. So we, we learn about the Tutsis. It happened 15 years ago. It was broadcast. Dehumanization was broadcast mainly on the radio, although weapons and things were important in France, largely. But the radio played a, a key role in dehumanizing the Tutsis. Then you have Darfurians in the age of the internet who are entering into a genocide of six years. And then, and then I spoke about radical Islam and uh, Iran's uh, incitement to genocide. Um, so it was a very kind of difficult session. You know, so, so, you know, so forget, if you set aside the, the threat that Iran is posing to Israel, the fact that Darfur has been on that for six years and we know about it is, is it's staggering. Morally and ethically, and politically. Um, <coughs> I don't know how, yeah. how to. Uh, there's no set answers, you know. Uh, uh, so, so I was going to say something else, but it's still my mind. Yeah, there's also another twist is that you're, 
you know, your theories don't necessarily lend to, but maybe you can figure out a way. Uh, that uh, if Iran uh, attacks Israel, Iran will be annihilated. It, it's 25 years before Iran has the capacity to match Israel's capa uh, uh, nuclear capacity uh, um, uh, and capacity to, to, to deliver. Um, and so what we have to think about, which is uh, not about prejudice, is there is there Shiitism, is there martyrdom on the level of nation? Because that's what they'd have to do. Um, because uh, uh, Israel w would, in, in response, uh, annihilate uh, Iran. Uh, and, and therefore, by the way, uh, um, uh, nuclear fallout to all the countries uh, around it, which is a rather populist area. So the question has to be, are, are, is, are they crazed enough to sacrifice themselves uh, in the Shiitism, is that a word? Can you share this? I don't know. Uh, in martyrdom. Yeah, I mean, this is that, that's really a crucial question. And I think, you know, one thing I didn't talk about is all these scapegoat ideologies. Another part of them is that they always have this utopian vision as well. And so it's, you know, this group is the source of all the problems, and that's why eliminating this group becomes the solution. Now, when you add that some sort of religious vision, potentially, where the solution is in the afterlife, then I think you potentially could have, you know, you do have martyrdom, right? I mean, you do have that idea on the, the part of individuals. But, you know, I mean, hopefully, I don't know, I don't know how much you see that on the part of groups, you know, um, but maybe that can also occur on the part of groups. Um, but yeah, I think that's a, that's a really crucial question. But that's the thing about anti-Semitism. It's all anti-Semites anti are saying only if the Jews become Christians, or the Jewish race disappears, or the Israeli state disappears, that the world will be saved and the world will be a better place. The, the one thing I want to say is, I spoke. Um, there was a, a session on honoring Bernard Lewis, and there were. It was in Israel. And there were key Israeli scholars and intellectuals there, and the general consensus in the meeting was that there is sort of unity developing between. Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Israel, Jordan, there is a worry in the Middle East about the destabilizing effect of Iran. Mm -hmm. So there is a coming together mm -hmm. at some level. Um, and also, but at, at this uh, conference that I attended, the Iranians are apparently are not 25 years away from developing the capacity to have a bomb. Um, I was at a conference where Chinese, Russian, European Union, North American and Israeli physicists, scholars, and security people were. The Israeli, everybody agrees that Iran is trying to build a bomb. Uh, everybody at the table agreed that. The Israelis are saying that Iran will have it within the year, and the other extreme, China, is saying that they'll have it within eight years. Right. No, that's not what I said, though. I said having the, uh, matching, the, matching the deliverable capacity of, of Israel. But as, as, the leader, and, and, as the leader of Iran said, they just need one right but again but dropping in Tel Aviv that's not where I'm not letting out state secrets that's not where Israel's nuclear capacity is Israel's nuclear capacity is uh, is, is disseminated and deliverable uh, uh, and in the air and at the moment and uh, in submarines etc so that um, uh, it, they would still be destroyed and um, perhaps at what point well the will not come what the money will come you have to destroy the world. Well, that's if you believe that you want the money to come, right? That's that's you where that's, that. if you yeah. really believe in an apocalyptic religious vision, mm -hmm. then then yeah, then I think it's possible. So again, I would go to really examining the content of the ideology um, and say you, you have to take those ideologies seriously because they wherever they come from, people believe in them. It's an uh, the ideology, I guess, is going to get. Fanatic segment of the society. The question was like, is the nation willing? Because I, I doubt the nation. But, right. but this is where leadership is so crucial. And right. if it's a fanatic leader, that he could take the nation with him with a, a band of um, followers that are as extreme. But and then most people are like the bystanders. Right. They kind of become uh, passive, and that's where the danger is. And and. Uh, uh, you know, that's where other leaders have to assess leaders of, I think, these kinds of countries. So it's difficult. So here, we have one question here, and then there, then we have to take a break. Um, we were talking about, you know, bystanders, 
And there was a situation in World War II where the New York Times knew everything that was happening and put all the information on the 23rd or 56th page because they didn't want to alienate most of the population. I mean, you can say that if they did it for money, but I think there's something else to that. Um, and maybe part of it is, you know, the issue of self-hatred, which has come up um, a lot, that, you know, a lot of Jews want to not be recognized. And I think I've known many people who say, oh, nobody knows I'm Jewish. And I can just say, you know, within seconds of something bad happening, you'll, you know, you'll be pointed to that. There's no such thing as assimilation here, even in this country for a Jew. I'm going to collect a couple of questions and you guys can respond. So Stacy, and then a question in the back. Okay. You sure? Yeah. Yeah, I'm actually struggling with, um, <clears throat> I'm struggling here when they try to formulate the question. But it somehow, it, it, it um, seems to me that, that um, I, 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 I'm down, I work down at Columbia University. So I, I sort of live with this cognitive dissonance down there, which is, it seems to me, that the, the dominant discourse since World War II of you know, progressive liberal thought um, has been about tolerance. Um, and certainly, you know, the, the 60s movements, which are sort of peripherally part of and things like that, it's all been about this notion of tolerance. And it seems to me that this is broken down in some fundamental way that requires a rejection of something. <laughs> I'm not quite sure. I mean, it sort of reminds me of some of the massive changes in my own uh, religious orientations over my life, just some of the massive changes. And I, I, I don't quite know how to ask the question, but it seems to me that there's something massively wrong. It's not just, you know what I mean, it's not just something around the edges, uh, but something sort of core wrong with the fact that, the, that for example, you know, the, um, the, modal, the modal academic opinion at Columbia is, has absolutely no outrage about anything going on in Saudi Arabia or Iraq or, or Darfur, but he's outraged about what happened in Gaza. He's utterly outraged about that, and is furious, for example, with the president for having insulted Ahmadinejad. There's new letters every week. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm just, I'm just, am I alone in this thought? I mean, yeah. it, it, somehow there's this massive cognitive dissonance that I'm trying to make some sense of. Well, I mean, yeah, I think that the anti-Semitism of the left, if the Jews are powerful and if Israel's the military might, you know, then there's no sympathy. They're part of the power structure, and this whole, you know, neocons who are Jewish, you know, this, this kind of conservative Jewish wing, you know, with powerful neocons is, you know, I just think, is really infected thinking on the left, and you know how 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 you can't see that. Okay, if you were in Saudi Arabia, you know. You're not going to be able to hold your views, right? I mean, about tolerance and freedom and you know whatever. Women I mean, in Saudi. I mean, just the facts about women in Saudi. I know. I uh, as a sex, uh, primarily a sexism researcher. I mean, it's it, it's crazy. Yeah, I, I agree with you, but I think it, it you know that then it gets to I mean, maybe you can answer this question too. Like, why is such the singular focus on this as opposed to all these other things? Can I suggest as an answer as a social psychologist? I think it has to do with the kind of comparisons that we used to do as, uh, in general that human that people do. One uh, has to do with collective guilt. Maybe Europeans or people that are uh, of European descent they prefer to do the comparison to uh, because they because uh, in order to avoid the collective uh, guilt they would do the comparison that is. Uh, convenient for them by showing that uh, that uh, Jews are not better than what they used to be, then it's, uh, how do Desmond Dahl call it? Moral equalization, yeah. yeah. I can't pronounce the word. It's a, a, it's a type of comparison that is uh, convenient. Moral equivalent. Palliative comparison, that's one mechanism. And another thing uh, uh, has to do with the social comparison in general, that we tend to compare ourselves to people that are similar to us. So for example, uh, usually people compare themselves if they want to see if they're successful, if they're professional, to people that are either a little high, higher than them or lower than them, but not to people that are completely different than them. And I think that because Israelis are Westerners, then uh, the comparison to them is more 
uh, natural than to if you're so as a Western people, people people you won't compare yourself to um, people that are non-Westerners because the, the social distance is too far. And I think this uh, this can uh, explain uh, why why this compare why this uh, is so emotionally charged and, and other violations of human rights are not. So, on that note, I'd like to thank you very much for a really exciting. We're in this room at 10 minutes past 4.